In the latter half of the 9th century, chaos reigned supreme in the far north of Britain. For two generations or more, opportunistic Scandinavians had not only sailed across the North Sea from their original homelands in Scandinavia to lay waste to the formerly Pictish kingdoms of the mainland and the Gaelic Dalriartan realms of the Isles, but also made permanent bases on the shores of the Irish Sea, from where they pushed ever outwards to claim more and more territory from the last remnants of the aforementioned kingdoms. It was into this maelstrom of war and chaos that a new ruler came to the fore in the 840s, solidifying control over the area around the River Tay, near modern-day Perth, that would eventually become the heartland of the medieval kingdom about to be born. His name was Kenneth McAlpine. This video is sponsored by Vikings War of Clans a free-to-play online game inspired by the classic strategy and RPG games of the 90s and the noughties. What makes the Vikings world so interesting is the more than 20 million online players constantly changing and evolving the way that the game works, by never-ending fighting over resources, forging new alliances and competing in live events. Help support this channel and get a special bonus of 200 gold coins and a protective shield by downloading Vikings War of Clans for free using the link in the description box below. In later centuries, often considered the founding father of Scotland, Kenneth MacAlpine emerged in the aftermath of the deaths of practically all of the highest ranking Pictish and Gaelic rulers in 839, eventually establishing himself as the foremost native king in the area by 848. Though in actuality, he ruled over little more than a rump state near modern-day Perth, much like Alfred would rule over a much-diminished Wessex a generation later. So it was that the precariously placed Kenneth MacAlpine, still using the title King of the Picts, harassed from without by Vikings and plagued from within by rebellious contenders resentful of his new leadership. He succeeded in establishing a new royal dynasty, the first of medieval Scotland. Upon his death in 858, MacAlpine was briefly succeeded by his brother, Domnall, and then his son, Constantine I, a ruler who continued the long struggle against the Vikings. In 876, however, Constantine became the latest royal casualty to fall to the Northmen when he was killed in battle against invaders, possibly operating northwards from their newly claimed realm of Northumbria. Just two years later, in 878, he was followed to the grave by his brother and heir, Aid. What follows is a two decades long period of uncertainty, during which time, Next to nothing is reported by the Irish Annals, nor the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, the usual mainstays of information on early medieval Scotland. The king named in the Chronicles of the Kings of Alba for this period is Girric, apparently no relation to MacAlpine. 
but another, called Eacad, is also named, perhaps a grandson of the founder of the New Kingdom, suggesting a certain level of anarchy or even civil war between rival factions during this time. Meanwhile, two grandsons of Macalpine, Domnal and Constantine II, may have spent Giric's reign in exile in Ireland, with their aunt, Mael Muir, the wife of two successive High Kings of Ireland, Aid Findlay and Flan Sinner. At the time, the Vikings of Ireland seem to have begun a period of temporary decline, known as the Forty Years' Rest, that ultimately ended in their temporary expulsion from their primary stronghold of Dublin in 902. Though, of course, this also had the knock-on effect of causing more and more raiders to flood into Scotland and the western coast of Britain to seek their fortunes away from the vengeful Irish kings. Girick died in 889, and if the two young princes had indeed been in exile over the sea, they returned to the kingdom their grandfather had founded, a land now racked by turmoil and on the verge of extinction. The elder of the two princes, Domnall, became the new king upon Girick's death or deposition in 889, ruling over a kingdom in a state of near-perpetual warfare for the next 11 years. Until he too, like his father, uncles and probably numerous other family members and friends, died a violent death at a premature age, killed by the Northmen this time at the ancient and formidable fortress of Dunatar on the eastern coast, where he had made a last stand against either Norse gales from Ireland, raiders from the Northern Isles, or even an invasion force led by Harold Fairhair, the great unifier often said to have been the first king of Norway, who, according to the Norse saga Heimskringla, had journeyed west to ravage the coasts of Scotland in that year. If you want to hear more of Fairhair's exploits, as recorded by the 12th century Icelandic skald Snorri Sturluson, as well as the exploits of other famous Vikings, then head on over to our other channel, Voices of the Past, for much, much more. Thus, after his brother's death, Constantine II became the new king of the fledgling Pictish Gaelic realm. He had little time to enjoy his newfound position of power, however. Almost as soon as he was crowned, his kingdom was subjected to a renewed batch of Viking raids. In the third year of his reign, possibly as a result of the Norse expulsion from Ireland, an attack on Constantine's heartlands at Dunkeld is recorded. In 904, however, something pretty unusual happened. Rather than the standard affair of the Picts and Gales being massacred and driven back from the battlefield, often accompanied by the perfunctory regicide that so often went with it, the killing of a band of Vikings is recorded. along with their leader, Imar, a grandson of Ivar the Boneless, and possibly ruler of the exiled Vikings of Dublin at the time. Scores of kings had already been killed, but now, after a generation of warfare, 
The tables had finally turned for a time. A leading Viking king had lost his life at the hands of a Scottish ruler. Two years later, Constantine's position was apparently secure enough that he was able to gather the leading churchmen and rulers of his realm at the royal capital of Scon to pledge themselves to his laws, specifically Gaelic ones. This association with Gaelic Christianity and the fact that he is the first ruler of MacAlpine's kingdom to be regarded as King of Alba in the contemporary sources rather than King of the Picts has led a number of historians to attribute this moment as an integral step in the Gaelicisation of the Picts, and thus the birth of Scotland. The next five years seem to have been relatively uneventful, though by 9-11 hostilities flared up again, heralding the arrival of a terrifying new force in the area. The Vikings were back. The fragmentary annals of Ireland, perhaps referring to events sometime after 9-11, claimed that Ethelfled, daughter of Alfred the Great and ruler of Mercia, allied herself with the Irish and northern rulers against the Northmen on the Irish sea coasts of Northumbria, after renewed raids threatened both of their interests. The annals of Ulster record the defeat of an Irish fleet from the Kingdom of Ulaid by Vikings on the east coast of England at about this time. It is also around this time that the Chronicle of the Kings of Alba reports the death of Domnall, the king of the Strathclyde Britons, and subsequently suggests that Constantine may have had his own man placed upon the throne of the neighbouring kingdom. This has often been taken as early evidence of the domination of Strathclyde by the kings of Alba, who may have banded together in an alliance of convenience against the Vikings. From around 914 onwards, however, the political situation in Britain and Ireland was about to drastically change once more, as piratical raids stepped up a gear under a new wave of sea kings. Two more warlords claiming descent from Ivar the Boneless, perhaps even sons of the Imar, killed in battle by Constantine in 904. By 916, two autonomous war fleets under the Sea Kings, Citric and Ragnall, both probable grandsons of Ivar the Boneless, returned to Ireland with a vengeance, ravaging the lands of the Irish kings and killing anyone that stood against them. By 917, Citric had successfully re-established the Kingdom of Dublin, with himself upon the throne, ushering in the new age of piracy in the Irish Sea a golden age for the Uyamer, with Citric's brother Ragnall appearing to have turned his gaze eastwards across the Irish Sea to establish himself as king in Jorvik. Before that could happen, however, Ragnall had unfinished business with the king of Alba, who may have killed his father just over a decade earlier. At roughly the same time, in 918, Ethelfled, the Lady of the Mercians, who had been negotiating with the Northumbrians, to peacefully obtain their submission to English rule, passed away. Her younger brother, the King of Wessex, Edward, 
was then occupied with securing control of Mercia and could do little against Ragnall's invasion. Faced with the onslaught of Ragnall's warriors, Eildred, the Lord of Bernicia, the northernmost part of Northumbria that had survived for generations amidst a sea of Scandinavian invaders, came north seeking assistance from Constantine. The two ancient foes then set aside their differences and advanced south together to face Ragnall, engaging him in battle somewhere on the banks of the River Tyne, probably at the village of Corbridge. Though the battle was indecisive and Ragnall was able to head south to seize York in its aftermath, he also lost a number of his followers in the fighting, and as such was unable to further campaign against Alba. He died soon afterwards, only to be replaced by his kinsman, Citric. An equally terrifying prospect. Nonetheless, the Scottish contemporary sources recorded Corbridge as a victory for Constantine. Meanwhile, in the south, Alfred's son, Edward, had rapidly secured control of Mercia and prepared his armies to strike further north, which they did over the coming years, eventually succeeding in forcing Citric's submission, and also, for the first time, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, forcing Constantine to submit too, though the authenticity of this claim has often been called into question. It is an omen of the shape of things to come. Edward died in 924, and after a brief period of instability, he was succeeded by his son, Athelstan. Already a formidable military leader, blooded from his aunt Ethelfled's reconquest of eastern Mercia from the Vikings. From this point onwards, the tendency would now be for Vikings and Scots to make common cause against the new dominant power on the scene, the English. By 926, King Citric acknowledged Athelstan as overking, agreeing to be baptised into the Christian faith and marrying a sister of Athelstan at the ancient Mercian capital of Tamworth. Within the year, however, he probably abandoned his new faith and sent his wife away, but before Athelstan could march north to fight him, he died suddenly in 927. His kinsman Guthrith, who had remained as his deputy in Dublin, then made the crossing from Ireland to take power in Jorvik, but failed. Athelstan moved quickly, seizing much of Northumbria and forcing the submission of the Bernicians. In less than a decade, the Kingdom of the English had become by far the greatest power in Britain and Ireland, perhaps stretching as far north as the Firth of Forth and far to the south into Cornwall, exerting overlordship over all of the disparate lands between. John of Worcester's chronicle suggests that Athelstan now faced his main opposition from Constantine, Owen of Strathclyde, possibly a sub-king of Constantine at the time, and from the Welsh kings. Soon enough, Athelstan and Constantine went to war. William of Malmesbury suggests that the catalyst for the conflict had been Constantine's decision 
to give refuge to Citric's young son, Olaf Citrixson, though it could have just as easily been caused by simple English expansionism. By no means the first example of this in history. A meeting in July 927, probably accompanied by an overwhelming show of English force, was sealed by an agreement that Constantine, Owen, Huldar of Deabarth and Eildred of Bernicia would renounce all idolatry, that is, they would not ally with the Viking kings. Athelstan followed up his advances in the north by securing the recognition of the Welsh kings. For the next seven years, the record of events in the north is blank, though notably Athelstan's court was attended by the Welsh kings, but not by Constantine or Owen. In 934, the English were back, this time with a vast invasion force, accompanied also by several Welsh underkings. Though little is known of the reasons for the invasion, it proved simply too much for Constantine's much smaller and less populous kingdom to deal with. Athelstan's campaign is reported briefly by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and later chroniclers such as John of Worcester, William of Malmesbury, Henry of Huntingdon, and Simeon of Durham. Athelstan's army began gathering at Winchester by May 934, and reached Nottingham by June. He was accompanied by many leaders, including the Welsh kings Huel Dar, Idwil Fowell, Morgan ap Owain, and notable leaders of the recently conquered Danelaw. Many of them still pagan Scandinavians, perhaps bound to Athelstan by personal oaths of loyalty, and, of course, a desire to be on the winning side. The battle for Britain was about to begin. An epic struggle involving nearly every far-flung kingdom of the island. And several from neighbouring Ireland too. From Mercia, the army went north, stopping at Chesterler Street before resuming the march, accompanied by a fleet of ships. Owen was defeated, and Simeon states that the army went as far north as Dunatar and Fortrio, ravaging and burning in an overwhelming show of force. Knowing when he was beaten, according to John of Worcester, a son of Constantine was given as a hostage to Athelstan, and Constantine himself accompanied the English king on his return south. He witnessed a charter with Athelstan at Buckingham on the 13th of September 934, in which he is described as sub-regulus, that is, a king acknowledging Athelstan's overlordship. The following year, Constantine was again in England at Athelstan's court, this time at Cirencester, where he appears as a witness to a charter, appearing as the first of several subject kings, followed by Owain and Huldar. At Christmas of 935, Owain was once more at Athelstan's court, along with the Welsh kings, but notably, Constantine was not. His return to England, less than two years later, would be in very different circumstances. 
Following his disappearance from Athelstan's court after 935, there is no further report of Constantine until 937. In that year, however, together with Owain and Olaf Guthrithson, the latest grandson of Ivar to hold sway in Dublin, and a king now bonded by blood to the kings of Alba after his marriage to Constantine's daughter, Constantine invaded England. Athelstan marched north to meet the invasion at a place named Brunenburg. And the most famous battle of the era took place. Brunenburg, though lost today, may well have been one of the bloodiest battles of Britain's early Middle Ages. In the next generation, during the time of the historian Ethelweird, it was still known as the Great War by the common people, the bones of the dead still very visibly littering the landscape of where it took place. The deeds done on that day being celebrated in Anglo-Saxon poetic tradition for generations to come. Most notably in the epic poem of the same name. You can listen to it here, over on our second channel, Voices of the Past. For all that it had been a famous and bloody battle, Brunenburg settled very little, with both of the main adversaries to English power managing to slip away. Constantine fleeing back north, whilst Olaf limped back across the Irish Sea to Dublin. On the 27th of October, 939, Athelstan died at Malmesbury. He was succeeded by his younger brother, Edmund, then aged just 18. Though now a proven warrior, having stood in the shield wall with his elder brother and mentor, Edmund lacked the personal oaths of loyalty pledged to Athelstan by the various thanes of the Danelaw, as well as the webs of allegiance he had spent much of his reign carefully cultivating all over his vast kingdom. Athelstan's empire, seemingly made safe by the victory of Brunanburh, collapsed in little more than a year from his death, when Olaf Guthrithson returned from Ireland and seized Northumbria and the Mercian Danelaw. After more than a decade of uncertainty and defeat at the hands of the English, Constantine's alliance with the Norsemen had finally borne fruit, placing a large wedge between Alba and the Anglo-Saxons. The English wouldn't try to seriously invade again until the time of the Plantagenets, well over 200 years later. Constantine had held out long enough, thus saving his fledgling nation from the seemingly invincible English kingdom. Over an astonishingly long four decades of rule, Constantine had at first fought tooth and nail to ensure his kingdom's survival from the Dublin Norse, but later finally allied himself with them against the new paramount power of Britain, the English. By the early 940s, Constantine was an old man, a veteran king, 
probably more than 70 years old, during a time when the average man lived to around 30. Remarkably, he would go on to live for another decade, retiring to a monastery to live out the rest of his days. Possibly after being forcibly removed by his impatient nephew Malcolm, who had likely been waiting around in the wings for decades. This makes Constantine one of the longest-lived rulers of the entire early Middle Ages. The sheer length of his reign, and the fact that he managed to survive for so long, strikes him out as an anomaly. Typical of the geopolitics and shifting power dynamics of the age, Constantine was a pro, mastermind over a shifting set of allegiances to rival even that of Athelstan. The style of governance developed during Constantine's reign continued in much the same way until the Davidian Revolution in the 12th century, and the introduction of a more lucrative, though brutal, Norman-style feudal system. As with his ecclesiastical reforms and the merger of the Pictish and Gaelic spheres of influence, his political legacy was the creation of a new form of Scottish kingship that lasted for two centuries after his death, and ultimately the assurance of independence from the many hostile powers besetting it on all sides. Kenneth McAlpine had cleared the way for the birth of Scotland, but Constantine had truly made it. <laughs>